0: Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Godin, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoruso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon
1: John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast,
0: the Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know. and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, Nathan Chan here. Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. I'm currently speaking to you while standing on my super cool new standing desk. I heard sitting is the new smoking, so I had to get a standing desk, and I'm absolutely loving it. Um, you could probably hear if I go down, you, you might be able to hear that in the background, but I'm going up and down with my desk, just because I can, it's really, really cool, but um, just wanted to mix it up, mix up the flow of these intros. If you're a regular listener, it can become a little bit robotic and a little bit repetitive. So now let's talk about today's guest, Ankor Nagpal. He's the founder of Teachable, and what these guys have done is they've created this amazing platform, an amazing piece of software that allows you to build and sell online courses and create your own online course, and uh, they've done it really, really well. Great design, great execution, and they do a lot of training for their community, and uh, funnily enough, I met Encore through Their head of growth, Andrew. And uh, it was really interesting. The way I found Andrew is, you know, we've been doing webinars for a while, probably be about close to a year now. But when I, um, you know, first wanted to get into webinars, I wanted to master them and I didn't know what I was doing wrong. And it was really hard to find answers. And, um, you know, I just got my hustle on and I actually found Andrew on Clarity, reached out to him. And uh, he was such a nice guy. He didn't even want to charge me and taught me. Everything he knows around webinars, and it was just crazy how much he actually helped me. And now we're actually really, really good at webinars. We generate a significant amount of revenue doing webinars uh, for our products. And uh, yeah, um, he was just like, "Oh, you know, I'll introduce you to Encore." You know, caught up with Encore, caught up, and you know, he's just like a super, super solid guy, very, very smart guy. And these guys are disrupting the online education space with their software. And yeah, pretty much um, I had to speak to him. So this conversation, we talk a lot about how Encore raised capital. Uh, What was interesting was Andrew told me Encore is one of the best he's ever seen, uh, in regards to raising capital, and pretty much no one ever says no to him when he's trying to raise capital. So it was really interesting. We talked about you know bootstrapping versus raising capital, uh, how he plans to scale, teachable, all the things that he's got going on, and he's just a really clued in, very very smart guy. He's built and sold a cash flow based business where he was doing some stuff around uh, Facebook apps and uh, he made, a, I think, a bit of money doing that, and uh, he's got some really interesting realizations and in the way he sees the world, the way he approaches business. So I know you guys are going to love this episode. All right, guys, so that's it from me. Uh, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review, and also, just while I have you, if you are interested in connecting with like-minded entrepreneurs, these are, you know, amazing people just like you that listen to our content, read our content, consume our content. They're in the founder community. We do have... This amazing, amazing membership called Founders Club. It's pretty much for boss entrepreneurs and founders only. There's a lot going on there. If you are interested, you know, it's a product that we've just recently created. I believe in it so much, and I think it's gonna change the game for anyone that's an entrepreneur or a startup founder or a business owner. So if you wanna know more, Please go to founderclub, F-O-U-N-D-R, club, club, dot com, and you'll be able to find out much more. All right, guys, now let's jump into the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to join me, Ankur. Yeah, happy to. Awesome. So um, the first question I ask everyone that uh, I speak to is, how did you get your job?
1: It's actually funny. I've never, I've never had a real job in my life. Um, so, what I do when I don't get jobs is basically create companies and give myself a job. But literally, I've had one job in my life, which was a summer internship when I was 18 years old. And after that, I've never had what could be traditionally called a job.
0: Awesome. And uh, can you tell us about the work? Like, how, how do you find yourself doing the work you're doing today?
1: Yeah. So, right now, I run a company called Teachable, which helps people build and sell online courses. And this happened, you know, pretty organically. I was teaching online on a platform called Udemy. I was building courses as a teacher and I saw this opportunity and I realized, look, there's something here. I want to see what I can do. Um, So I built this tool. At first, it was only for myself. I never knew, you know, it would become a company. So I built this tool just for myself and soon realized that, you know, after I'd solved my own problem, there were other people like me. So, I could then take this tool and find more people like me, give them the opportunity to sell online courses using our software. And, you know, things started spiraling from there.
0: I see. So, when did you start Teachable?
1: Um, I started Teachable in the fall of 2013. But early on, I didn't know it was a company. I never planned on raising venture capital, never thought this would be anything more than my personal side project. So, for the first few months, it was just like my fun little side project. I had no idea that this was what I wanted to do or this is what you know, this is what I would spend the next two years of my life doing.
0: Yeah, I see. So your, your company wasn't originally called Teachable. It was called, because I'm sure many people would have heard yeah. of um, Fedora. 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 Correct.
1: Yep, it was called Fedora. Um, we were almost sued out of existence, so we decided <laughs> to rebrand to Teachable.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know that feeling. Uh, we've actually been through that same path. And, uh, yeah. The company wasn't originally called Founder, but uh, for us – it was a real blessing. So yeah. yeah, I'm I'm curious. So you said that you, you were teaching on Udemy and you created your own software. What were your frustrations uh like with using Udemy that, that forced you to want to create Teachable? What were the things that were missing in the marketplace that Teachable
1: does? So to start off with, you know, what I liked about Udemy that I wanted to replicate was the fact that it was so so simple. To create an online course, right? They just made the entire process easy. It was not like an you know an old learning management system. They made that part natural. But what I found terrible is on Udemy, you did not have ownership of a student. Like you could not even email them in the future. You know anyone that's built an online business, as you probably know, if you're building a business where you do not have even a student's email address, that's not a business. You're just you know you're making a little bit of side money. You're not building anything sustainable. You can't build on top of that. So that was the biggest, biggest frustration. I wanted the simplicity of a platform like Udemy, but I wanted to be able to, you know, own my students. I wanted to be able to contact them when I wanted. I wanted to be able to control pricing. I wanted to be able to be my own brand. Um, it's these kinds of frustrations that made me want to take the simplicity of a platform like Udemy, but give people a tool to power their own websites. Give people a tool to put their own brand name, set their own pricing, get full control on their, you know, of their students. Um, and that's how that's how Fedora at the time was born.
0: I see. And do you have a development background? Did you code it yourself or you yep, outsourced it? I'm the this? worst
1: developer in the world. <laughs> um, I'll be honest. I am, I'm literally, you know, at least if you ask anyone who's actually a developer at Teachable, they will tell you I'm the worst developer in the world. But I think, I, you know, I always knew enough coding to be dangerous. Like I could build what I wanted and it it would work. The problem is it was a disaster from the back end. Like no other developer could ever use it. Um, so all it could really do was validate whether an idea had legs or not. But that was all I needed at the time. You know, I, I could prove that with my own terrible coding abilities, I could prove how to build a prototype, you know, do enough volume on the prototype that I can then take that, raise capital off the back of the prototype and then build a real engineering team around it, which
0: is what we did. I see. And... And you said something that I'm sure a lot of people in our audience will be interested in, and that is, you built a prototype or something that you could at least validate an idea from. Are mm-hmm. you able to elaborate on that? Like, how did you actually know when the idea was validated? How what was the process there?
1: Yep, um, it was as simple as you know. In general, I think as an entrepreneur, I'm pretty ADD, and I go through a lot of different ideas. What I like about being able to do a little bit of coding is you can actually build your idea. You can see what happens and see if it has legs behind it. So with Fedora, for instance, you know, at first it was just something that I built for myself and my friend Conrad. We're both teaching online. Day one, I think we did a few hundred dollars in in sales. And I was like, wow, you know, like this is more validation than like my last 10 ideas. But just seeing the progress over the first few weeks, you know, and just the fact that we found other people that wanted to use it, we found people willing to pay us to use it. And, you know, my biggest mistake was I probably waited too long to consider the idea validated. Like we only raised money about six or seven months after launching the first version when realistically it should have been two or three months. I think, I, was, I think it was my own fear holding me back that I just didn't believe like, you know, like this was it. In retrospect, I should have seen the science sooner rather than later.
0: Hmm, I see. And how did you get your first paid customers?
1: Our first paying customers, and this is a funny story because we got very lucky. Well, I'll do it customer by customer. Customer number 1 was very easy because he was the guy I was teaching with. So I was like, "Look, I'm going to build a solution. Um will you, you know, pay me 15% of sales t- to use this?" And he was a buddy of mine, so he kind of couldn't say no. So he did it, and you know, he made a little bit of money, and then I had one case study. And then we got really lucky because what Udemy did is they changed their pricing model like five or six days into when we launched our product. And it's a complete coincidence. It's, you know, super, we got very, very lucky. And it's another great example of how, you know, sometimes you need fortunate things to happen. And that's what happened. They used to give teachers 70% of earnings on course sales. What they did is they announced a pricing change that said, hey, guys, you're not going to get 70% anymore. You're only going to get 50%. And that wow. just created yeah, exactly. So that created an exodus of like angry, angry instructors, like you know, people that were just wanted to look for alternatives. And that's when we started sending email to people being like, Hey, I know you're doing well on Udemy, but you know, do you want to check us out? And that kind of helped us get customers two through six.
0: Yeah, wow. So you were just going cold, you were finding these Udemy instructors that we you could yep. see were doing well. Yep. Um, and then just going cold, just yep. doing things. I, know, that don't I mean, scale. Being, persi-
1: being persistent. Um, obviously, like our response rate was so low early on, but I mean, we're always you know pretty respectful while also being aggressive and frequently checking in. And because for a lot of people, it was not you know they only replied to email number four or something.
0: Mm. Okay. All right. Awesome. So. Then then what happened next, man? You you so you had did you have your co-founder Conrad at this stage after you validated the concept? Or yeah, keep let's yep. keep going. So so
1: at the time, at the time Conrad was focused full-time building a business on the platforms. He was the first customer and advising us as a company. So that was it finally reached a point about as I said, five or six months in where I was like, okay, look, this is validated. You know, what next? And I was like, well, for one, we need real technology to, you know, we need a team, both of which cost money. So I decided to hop on a plane to Silicon Valley and start talking to people to raise a seed round.
0: Okay, and and how did you know how much you needed to raise? How do you
1: work that out? So what I've heard from people, a rule of thumb is try in your first round to get the amount of capital you'd need for 12 months. A wild guess that, you know, and obviously you have to make estimates, I thought somewhere in the region of a million dollars would make sense. Um to be honest, I wish I could say there was like some kind of science to it, but you know, a million sounded about about right and when investors asked us how much do you want, if, as long as you know you seem confident enough and come up with a logical reasoning as to why, which for us was like, look, I think our burn is probably never going to go above 50k a month. A million dollars will give us, you know, 12 to 18 months which is right where we want to be. Um so that's how we settled on the amount we wanted to raise. With that said, Any entrepreneur that tells you he wants to raise a million dollars, I mean, that probably means he wants, he or she wants to raise anywhere from 600 to 1.5. You know, it's very fluid.
0: Mm, I see, I see. And uh, at what stage, sorry, in the the journey did you uh, go to raise capital? Was this about, this you
1: said, was it nine months later? About, yeah, about six months in. Um, We decided to raise capital. And at the time, it was still just me full time doing everything. I was, you know, I was the only salesperson. I was the only developer. I was customer (laughs) support. I was the community manager. Yeah, yeah, it was exhausting. But it left me with a very good feel and understanding of the product, right? Because a lot of times as a founder or as a CEO, rather, you get hands off with the product. You get hands off with the customer I did that I like I was just so deeply immersed that I feel like that benefited me a lot in the early days.
0: Mm. Now, before we keep going down this journey, I want to talk about your previous journey because I'm curious. You you said you that you had a a cash flow based business uh, mm-hmm. before starting Teachable yep. Fedora um and that was, you know, doing quite well. Can you tell us mm-hmm. about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so this was a business I ran from about age 18 to 21 building facebook applications. It was super super fun business, you know, we created a lot of I think by the end we had either created or built an app creator that in turn created over 10,000 applications reaching about 200 million people. So pretty much anyone that spoke english on the facebook platform. Yeah, wow. um, it was a super it was a super fun business, right? Like you were creating things that are, were built to grow fast. So personality quizzes, friend quizzes, like you'd get a notification Saying, "Hey, your friend Uncle answered. Do you think Nathan is a good interviewer?" And you'd be like, "Wow, I kind of want to see what he said." So it's very, it's tough. That was, you know, definitely very, very gimmicky. But it was just engineered to grow. Like the only thing that mattered was growth. It was simulta- like it was literally my introduction into the world of business. Right. It's the reason I could not have a traditional job. It's what gave me connections and friends in Silicon Valley at the age of 18 that I could then go back to. So it did a lot of good things for me that I'm always grateful for. At the same time, it also taught me certain things that made it very clear what I wanted to do next. Like for instance, you know, we were both, we were talking about this earlier, like I'm not that interested in building a business purely for the purpose of making money. I did that already. And that, you know, that was fun, but you know, now it kind of made me look, look for wanting to build something bigger than myself. Even the reason why we kind of built Fedora as being different from Udemy is like, I was personally so burnt out by building a business on another platform like Facebook, which by the way, it was a great platform to build a business on, but you're so dependent on another platform. That's just not a feeling I ever wanted again. I just never wanted to build a business on someone else's platform ever, ever again. Um, and that's why, you know, we, we built Fedora. is like, you don't want to build your business on Udemy. You don't want to build your business, on something else we want to give people the tools to build you know their own business like with teachable we're a platform like a technology provider we're not you know a marketplace um so it's that kind of frustration from having done that in my past that kind of has led me to do a lot of the things we're doing
0: yeah okay i see and you mentioned that business did really really well uh mm-hmm. did you sell it like what happened there Are you able nope. to talk some numbers or yeah
1: absolutely so i mean you know we made Made a few million dollars most of which i got to keep personally because we had no expenses um but the way the way the business monetized is it was generally advertising revenue towards the end we're making about 50 percent of our revenue from ad revenue the other 50 percent from virtual currency so people would you know buy people would could complete actions to earn currency that could be spent in game we never sold the business just because Facebook applications had no resale value. Like that entire business is only worth the money it made. And again, mm-hmm. that's one of my other frustrations with, you know, from a purely business perspective, if you're building a cash flow based business and you are going to sell it, you know, you're not going to get more than, you know, a few months of revenue, maybe a year or two if you're lucky. But if you're building enterprise value, that's an entirely different value proposition. Then you're building, you know, actual, you know, value that can be sold for a much greater multiple. So we never really sold you know we sold a couple of facebook applications for like 20 30,000 which is good but if you but some of our bigger facebook applications would make 50,000 a day mm. so yeah wow yeah so it's a completely different scale
0: i see so you 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 wound up the facebook business and is that when you started doing the udemy teaching nope i mean oh, if, only, if only if only <laughs> the
1: entrepreneurial journey was so simple honestly <laughs> um between the between the age of 21 and 23 I did nothing of note. I mean, I tried a lot of things. I did consulting for some time. I built some Android applications, had a little bit of success, but I was just, you know, ADD, doing a lot of different things, no one thing really resonating. Like I, you know, I wish it was my it was as simple as like everything I've done has been successful. But no, like, you know, in those two years I tried a lot of things, none of them probably more for more than a few months. That's the yes, that's what I did between age 21, 23. I didn't didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I was kind of, you know, almost in this place in my life where I wouldn't say I was stagnant because I still felt pretty good about what I'd done so far, but I just had nothing amazing happen in a couple of years. Um, and that's when I decided that, you know, I need a change of scene. And I was, I was living in San Francisco at the time, packed my bags, moved to New York City, started teaching. And that's when Teachable happened, you know, pretty organically.
0: Uh, I see. Yep. Gotcha. You, gotcha. You. Okay. So I guess the next... Question that I was going to ask you that I think our audience would be wondering is um, if that previous business that you did, you know, did so well, how come you didn't just use that or like any like money that you had to to self fund uh, and and not raise? Like, like what is your thoughts and take on bootstrapping versus raising capital? Mm -hmm. Why did you choose that path, Um, and and how come you didn't use your own funds?
1: So. Honestly, what it comes down to is diversification for portfolio. Um, What I think my most important asset is, like more than any of my capital, is my time. So I'm already investing my most important asset into the business. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see the point of also investing my cash, right? Like diversification, what if the company doesn't work out? The other reason is a huge reason I raised the money I wanted to from the people I wanted to is I wanted other people invested in my success. Like I indirectly self-funded the company by not paying myself for the first year and a half or something, Mm -hmm. which was my version of kind of self-funding, like realistically looking at what market salary I could have commanded. That was, you know, like the first six months of the company, all of that was me. But why did I not, you know, put in a few hundred thousand dollars in the company? It was just, you know, diversification of my portfolio. I think my time is worth more than my money and I'm investing 100% of my time into this. So when I raised the seed round, I also wanted to get you know, some of my smartest friends vested in my success. So we ended up raising capital, um, which I think was a great decision. I think I'm always very impressed with bootstrap startups, but I almost feel like funded startups get to get a really bad rap because of the way funding used to work, right? In the past, you'd be like, why would you want to raise funding and give up control? If you look at the kind of term sheets available right now, you never actually give up control like, you know, like I, the way we raise our funding is we never give up any operational rights to any investor. We don't have to report to an investor. I send a monthly report because I want to, not because I have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I almost look at it as the best of both worlds. We have capital to make mistakes because ultimately that's what the value of capital really is. It, it buys you time. It buys you the ability to be more aggressive and make more mistakes. So we raise the capital. We, we, you know, we got that in the bank and we still control our own destiny. We don't have a board of directors to report to. We don't have anyone with you know any kind of significant operating control. You know, it's still our business, just better funded.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, that was a great answer. Thank you. Yeah. Nicole. That was really really insightful. So you've raised you you know you went to Silicon Valley. You you actually you said you have a lot of friends and and you you mm-hmm. know you built your your Facebook uh, apps business back mm-hmm. in 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 San Francisco. You know a lot of people. Tell us about that process around raising capital cuz we met through um one of uh you know your head of growth Andrew mm-hmm. and he told me that like you're very very good at raising capital so <laughs> tell me tell me about why he says that and also tell me like tell me some notable investors man tell me like you know tell us about that part of the journey
1: Yeah absolutely um so yeah, I think, I think Andrew just kissing my ass. Um, no, but <laughs> honestly, honestly, um, I think I've been very fortunate just because, you know, so much comes down to people. Okay. Coming, let's cut, let's look at it from an investor's perspective for a second. Um, but what investors like to see is observing someone over a period of time and watching them develop, right? Because ultimately it's very hard for an investor to make a decision when they're meeting you for the first time, you're pitching them really hard, really well. For them to decide on the spot to give you money is hard. The advantage I had is I had a lot of people that invested in the company. I met them when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old. They've kind of seen my maturity. They've seen me develop. They've seen me grow. So when I come to them saying, hey, I'm raising money, it's not not about giving money to someone you just met. It's about giving money to someone you've, you know, known about and followed for six or seven years. So that's been, and, you know, I don't like saying this too much because this is not really something that's, you know, a very strong takeaway for a founder, like people raising money now they're like, well, you know, what can I, yeah, thanks. Like, how does that help me right now? So I think that was one of the things that worked out really well. The other advice in terms of something practical that I have for anyone. So if anyone's looking to raise a seed round that's listening to this podcast, the playbook I would follow, and this is largely what we did is find one really, really good investor, like one investor that's willing to go out and, you know, fight for you. It doesn't matter how much they put in. They could be putting in 20K. That's fine. Find that one investor that's a brand name almost. Do whatever you can to get him on board, get her on board. And then go to Angelist. It's that simple. Go to Angelist, have them syndicate the deal for you and just handle the rest inbound. Let people come to you. It's never going to work until you have that one kind of brand name investor. But getting one brand name investor, especially if it's a small amount of money, is still a lot easier than when you look at, you know, raising a million dollars up front. Yeah, because you kind of got that social proof, right? Yep, absolutely. So that's what happened to us. That was our exact story. Um, Matt Brezina, who is the founder of Zobni, one of the first Y Combinator companies, Mm -hmm. um, was the first person to, you know, officially be like, all right, I'm in. Um, And then I talked to Naval, who's the founder of AngelList, and a friend, and I told him, like, you know, what do you think we should do? And he's like, well, we'll just put it on AngelList and send it out. So our first round actually happened that easily, like, you know, wow. Matt put in money, got sent Angelist. And what was great about Angelist is instead of going to investors and getting rejected over and over, which did happen too, it's not like we didn't face that at all. We did have that. But here people just come to you and it creates that social proof really, really fast. Um, and that's kind of my grievance with investing, is it's so it's so much driven by herd mentality. Like so many of the investors that didn't want any piece of us initially. All wanted to come back <laughs> after the Angelist email went out. You know yeah. that's the thing that, that that's the thing that frankly sucks about it because and that's also why you know I really respect Map is and in general for me the hallmark of a great investor is someone that refrains from asking the question who else is investing because that means they're trusting their own instinct and that's very rare but I've found a lot of great investors don't ask the who else is investing question because when they do that it's so easy to get biased and influenced they're not evaluating opportunity. On what it is, to people listening, if you're raising money and an investor does not ask you who else is investing, take that as a very strong positive sign.
0: Mm, okay, interesting. No, this is great. Um, so, like, if you go on AngelList now, you can actually see uh, all your investors. You even, you know, it even says you know how much you've raised.
1: Yep. um, It did till the point that we got tired of updating it. So it's not fully accurate. Because <laughs> we were updating it early on every time we closed someone because we're like, yeah, social proof, social proof. And then when yeah. we like, kind of got to the round, we're like, yeah, we should maintain that profile better. But we raised a million dollars from you know a bunch of investors that summer. We raised a follow on million dollars in December from Atlas Ventures, taking us to about $2 million in seed capital. Yes.
0: Okay. Awesome. And you know tell us like where you guys are at now how's things going what what are you guys struggling with what's working what's not um
1: yeah so overall i mean i think all things considered we're in a very good place and right now we're i think i don't know it's tempting to always feel like you've done the hard work and i feel right now like we've done the hard work but you know you probably come back to me in a month and i'll be like i i knew nothing then (laughs) um right now we're at about you know we're at about a two million dollar run rate you know, going from zero to 1 million was super, super hard. Um, one to two was substantially easier in comparison. Mm. Um, so that that's kind of where we're at financially. We're trying to, you know, 5X our business annually. That's that's sort of our internal goal. I, you know, it's January now, so I have no idea kind of how that plays out. But our goal is to try and be a, be a $10 million business at the end of the year. Whether we get anywhere remotely, I'm so happy I'm not a public CEO where you're actually held to the things you say. I could totally come back here a year later and be like, ah, yeah, that failed. But that you know that's what we want to do. And more significantly, we also want to kind of be a paradigm shift in the world of online education. To me, it seems glaringly obvious. That there's going to be a growing class of teacher entrepreneurs. Basically, people. I mean, you know, you you'd belong in that category. Someone that's effectively an entrepreneur. You might not identify as an entrepreneur and you might not identify as a teacher, but I would call you both because you sell education to groups of people. And I think it's inevitable that there's going to be large classes of these kinds of people, both from people that used to be teachers, but also people that are, you know, good at any specific skill. So we think there's going to be, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people like that, and they're going to need a technology platform. And we believe we're the technology platform. Again, this could well be Delusional, but I think five years from now we're gonna look back and be like, "Wow, that was glaringly obvious."
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, look. Um, I see that same kind of vision as you, Uncle, in that sense because, like, this online you know teaching, online education, yep. it's a multi-multi billion dollar industry, yep. and you know when we started founder, we just started off as as a media company. We still are just you know a one arm of our business is is education and this is this only came from listening to our readers and, and users and yep. and and hearing what they were saying and they said, we need more help so it's like okay well how can we help you how can we further serve so I think it's very very smart um, you know one thing that one of my mentors taught me which actually I, I love this saying I think you will love it too is during the gold rush the people mm-hmm that made the money weren't, the ones, weren't the ones the ones mining the gold, they're the ones selling the tools. And that's the not picks to say and shovels. You, the picks yeah, and shovels. That's right. And it's not to say, you know, building this company to well you are building it to make money, but and that's not your sole purpose, but it is very, very smart
1: yep. well it's also the other thing is personally for me, again, after the Facebook app stuff, we were effectively in the content business and that's something else that I just don't want to be in at this point in my life my motivation was to build a platform versus a content business. A content business could be a lot more profitable personally, especially if you're a smaller company. You know, I wouldn't raise money if I was doing a content business, but yeah, our ambition was to be a platform that way you don't have to worry about being a hits driven business. I think content businesses can be very successful, but you're only as good as your last hit. Mm. Might it be courses, might it be the movie business, might it be music, right? Even the movie business, it looks like that. You're only as good as your last hit. Um, so personally, you're right, you know, we wanted to be a platform, we want to, you know, we want to be the picks and shovels in this in this space.
0: Mm, okay, awesome. So I'm curious for you guys to um, want to be a $10 million business by the end of this year, what, what needs to happen in terms of growth? What are some channels that are working really well that are feeling mm-hmm. feeling your growth? I'm curious. I know you guys are doing a lot of stuff on webinars. Um, yep.
1: What else? So what we've gotten pretty good at is converting our well, not pretty good at. We used to convert about, you know, one to two percent of our free users to paying users. We're now at about seven to eight. So yeah, wow. not so that's been that's been a huge, huge driver to the degree that, yeah, obviously, you know, we use webinars pretty aggressively to help with that conversion. But 2016 for us, our hope is this is a year we figure out paid acquisition because we're terrible at it right now. We barely do it. We spend maybe, you know, $50, $100 a day and all of our experiments are massive failures. My personal gut feeling is we're going to find it and we're going to start crushing it unpaid, but that's going to be a huge part of our strategy because I think it's pretty cool. We've gotten to this $2 million point without any effective paid marketing. So I look at that as, you know, the next Avenue, the next channel, it's why we might raise a little bit more money. Um, That's something we definitely need to prove out this year. The other thing, you know, we're going to do and we have to do is I still think as much as I love growth, you know, Andrew and I are on growth all the time. I think the highest leverage point we can have is building the the most amazing product in the world. So, so much of what we do just goes back right into the product. Um, And on the product side to our philosophy, and something I feel very strongly about is, you know, when we talk to people, there's certain things they really like about our product. They think it's really easy to use. They think it's it's delightful. Like it makes them feel good. It makes them feel good to like be working in something that's not a lot of fun, like editing their course. And they really like how good their courses look. So these are our strengths. Our weaknesses for a lot of people are lack of certain specific functionality. Like we don't have drip content yet. Chances are by the time people are listening, we might have it. But there's a, you know certain core features that people deem us not to have. They consider important. We effectively have two choices we can make on the product strategy. We can either compensate for the missing features which you know we're doing to a degree but what we're really focused on what i'm really excited to do is yeah we you know we'll eventually get all the missing features and stuff what i really want to spend this year doing is double down on our strengths so people think you know we help their sites look beautiful i want it to be more beautiful i want to make our strengths stronger before we compensate for our weaknesses and i think that's what makes a great product just something that does whatever people think you're good at just do that better and then worry about people that aren't happy because of X, Y, Z.
0: Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's great insight. So I'm curious around the webinar piece. You guys are very aggressive on webinars. Like how many do you do a week and how many do you plan to do a week?
1: <laughs> so we run a weekly webinar every Thursday. That's just part of our funnel. Whenever someone signs up for a free account to show them advanced functionality, give them an opportunity to upgrade their account. That's happening. That happens every Thursday on demand. Um, outside of that, we have joint venture webinars where we partner with other people, go to their audience, and deliver training to their audience. Those are scheduled ad hoc. Um, we try and aim for about two to three a month. We either end up doing a lot more than that in a month, or like just having nothing for a couple of months. But on average, I'd say two to three a month. We're trying to figure out the missing piece right now is what we do with our paid acquisition funnel. I think the answer might be kind of similar to your setup where it's a weekly webinar that's not about the product, but rather something a little more top funnel, like how do you succeed with online courses? We think it's that, or it could be a workshop that has a recorded workshop, but a live Q&A that happens every day. We're still experimenting with that. We don't know what the right funnel is over there, but that's kind of the missing piece that we're looking for is how do we, what is going to be our marketing funnel to successfully acquire paying, you know, successfully spend money to acquire paying users?
0: Yeah, I think webinars is is very very powerful. I, I you yep. know I only got introduced to them about six months ago, and uh, they're a great way to just provide a ton of value too to mm-hmm. your audience. Not just yep. not just to sell, but you know to educate yep. and and go from one to many, not one to one. Yep. Um, and, and it's a great way to, I guess, really speed up the sales process because yep. that's what everything is, right? It's just sales.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, but it's also in turn, that's another thing we're going to focus on this year is a lot of legitimate customer success, right? Not just not just selling, but also how can we help more people achieve success? And a lot of that, we'll, we'll also use webinars as a tool, except these won't be sales webinars. These will be webinars that are entirely focused on delivering value.
0: I see. So you're saying you would do like uh, webinars for your current... Yeah. Like learn, yeah. Learn,
1: yeah. Like, 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 learn email marketing on your teachable school. And it's entirely a, a workshop on how to do email marketing on your teachable school. Um, we might even make those paid features that drive revenue indirectly. So we're not selling, but in order to watch them, you have to be a paying user.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. We do stuff like that too for our, um, certain people in our community as well. And that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's really good. Like, it's, yeah, no, that's really smart too. Um, also, what other things are working for growth for you guys? Uh, you know, you've know, you got an amazing product. Um, so the biggest
1: – the other thing that I think works out very well is when people use our software to build their courses, when that soft, when their schools or sites get propagated outward, there's a percentage of students every single day that see, oh, this is powered by Teachable. I wonder what Teachable is. And they sign up for Teachable. So there's kind of this inherent – I won't say viral because it's not purely viral – but there's an inherent organic loop inside the product, which which helps so, so much. Word of mouth referrals is also huge for us. And yeah, you know, like the student side, like I think it was yet yeah, two days ago that we crossed the one million students threshold, right? So we're one of Ooh, the wow, we're one of the faster online education companies to get there. We definitely got there substantially faster than Udemy and Skillshare and stuff. I think Coursera might have gone there a little bit faster than us, but one of the fastest companies in online education to get to that milestone. And that's helped us a lot just because some of these students see, oh, powered by Teachable, we're going to, what is Teachable, and then use it. Um, and yeah, just organic referrals from very happy customers.
0: Yeah, okay. I see. You know, that's really, really smart. Kind of like um, what Hotmail did. Whenever yep. any, someone sent an email, it said, um, PS, I love you from yep. Hotmail. Yep. made by Hotmail or something. Yeah, that's, yep. yeah, okay. That's and even awesome. with all this, like
1: people can remove it, but, you know, only about 20, 25% of people end up removing it. Mm. like because we do say it can be entirely white labeled but a lot of people just don't just still leave the power by teachable in there
0: gotcha gotcha gotcha
1: you mentioned something about
0: Coursera. i was reading about them the other day apparently like, somebody was saying um when i was reading that they grew faster than facebook or something like
1: i wouldn't be surprised because early on they had a massive growth spurt where they got to two million people pretty quickly it's interesting, right? They had just they well, they still have a very strong inherent value proposition, like university level courses taught by university professors for free. The only challenge I'm sure they've discovered that I you know we discovered by looking at our data is my guess is no one's watching those courses because you're giving them away for free, which is the almost the ultimate kind of paradox of free online education is the more amazing content you provide for free, the less people are going to consume it.
0: Mm, yeah, that's so true because when people, uh, pay for something that makes them more accountable, and they yep, don't want to waste absolutely. their money. And so, yeah, actually, this is a really good question. You know, from your data and the things that you guys are finding, can you give us some insights on what's yep. working in the online courses, online teaching, and and this industry that I'm sure many people are yep. currently tapping into or looking to tap into?
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, to start off with, the most depressing fact of them all is people are very bad at watching courses. And a lot of times, it's not because your course is bad. It's not because people don't have good intentions. It's because people are fallible. With courses, very often you're selling to people the idealized version of what they want to be. Um, And that's the other kind of important thing is what we found is no one wants to buy a course. Like no one really cares about buying a course. What they want to buy is the outcome. Like no one is buying, like with your Instagram course, they're not buying the knowledge of how to set up Instagram. What they're buying is the idea of getting those followers. They're buying the fame. You know, that's what they're buying. It's like, it's like, it's like, you know, any fitness product, people aren't buying the fitness product. They're buying the ripped picture of themselves, right? They're buying that. (laughs) That's what they're buying. Same thing with courses. Mm. People are buying the transformation. They're not buying iPhone programming lessons. They're buying building their app. They're buying, you know, the picture of them creating their own app. Um, so that's one of the most interesting things we've realized is when you're a teacher, all you need to focus on is getting people to that kind of picture. And that's what they're buying. Like no one really cares about your course. Um, so that's one interesting insight. The other interesting insight, as I said, is people are really bad at following through. The ways you can increase them following through are by nagging them on email and by charging more money. Like those are literally the only two ways of seeing seen of actually, you know, helping people move along with money being a very effective motivator uh, when people pay more money, they not only do they watch more of the course, they end up having better results, they're less likely to ask for a refund, and they report higher satisfaction ratings from the same course. So charging more money is, is a no-brainer, in my opinion, um, in most cases. So that's been a really interesting insight. The third interesting insight has been just the diversity of the kinds of courses succeeding. It blows my mind every day seeing, you know, how specific and sometimes how bizarre the topics are, you know, that end up doing pretty well. Yeah. Can you give us some examples? Yeah. Um, Japanese rope bondage is one. Uh, <laughs> what is that? It's called Shibari, as I recently learned. I, I really like, I think they're, they're, the site's tagline is tying people, not packages. But, you know, there's so many specific examples, like the Minnesota School of Firearm Training is a proud customer. Um, We have, you know, people teaching how to play instruments we've not heard of, people teaching courses in languages we can't recognize, selling them in currencies we didn't know we supported. It's just really cool to see that kind of stuff happening. Like, you know, it's just not all programming, marketing, and design courses. It's, It's a cake design course. It's a digital scrapbooking course. It's a jazz guitar course. Um, that's what's fun to watch, right? Because so much of courses traditionally has been dominated by, oh, you know, make money online. And it's just fun to see the other kinds of courses.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, look, Um, we have to work towards wrapping up and call, but, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you some more things about your journey as an mm-hmm. entrepreneur. What has been the hardest times, you know, tell us about, the times that you felt like giving up and, and, you know, what yep. have you had to sacrifice to get where you are today? Yep.
1: I will caveat it with, you know, this, like, I, I do understand a part of me sounds like a douchebag when I say it, but the the times that I found hardest were generally when I was, you know, and at, at this point I was 18, 19 years old when, you know, we'd have a successful application on Facebook and they would change the rules or they would change something around and we'd lose everything overnight. That happened, yeah, well, you know, yeah. that happened maybe four or five times. And it was, it was crushing. Like, you know, it was like, after that, I was like, I'm never going to do this again. Like, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to look at this. I don't want to deal with this. Like, it's just the idea of like working really hard, building something and having it pulled from under your feet. That experience has put me in good stead now because I faced those experiences when I was relatively young. Um, you know, I'm 26 now, I'll be 27 next week now I'm in a much better position to handle that stuff. In the latest chapter at Teachable, I don't want to go into too much detail for certain reasons, but the hardest stuff to deal with have been kind of the more human things, right? Like, for instance, like working with people and discovering someone's not the right fit, for instance, Um, especially when you've gone on to form a friendship with a person. That kind of stuff is, you know, ultimately what I personally find hardest to deal with. It's not product launches. It's not... We're not hitting our growth numbers. It's just, you know, the human thing and wanting to do well by people you work with.
0: Mm, you know, that's a great one. Um, and that's something I'm starting to discover now too. It's, yeah, that human part is very difficult. Hey? Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. And what about, uh, you know, I guess what, because you said you have a lot of really successful friends in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. um, you know from from all the entrepreneurs and and, and these successful friends that you know what are the some of the underlying uh, characteristics that you notice and see in in a successful entrepreneur
1: i'm going to first start by talking about one of the things that people i'm sure on your podcast bring up a lot that but i don't think is that important is kind of working irrationally hard cuz i i personally get so frustrated with the silicon valley narrative of the founder that sleeps in the car that pulls in 14 hour days. I personally think that's a load. I think that's a load of crap. I think, I think I've produced my best work by being lazy, by maximizing effort to reward. And I think the best entrepreneurs, at least the ones that I relate to the most are people that think similarly, not people that are inherently lazy. I'm not saying you, you know, you still work a 50 hour week, but what really pisses me off is people that take pride in working an 80 hour week when they don't have to. Um, And, you know, just look at, you know, I think we've done pretty well as a company working normal hours. Like our story is not one of working stupidly hard. Our story is one of working smart. Um, And that's something that I think, you know, has helped me all through my life and a lot of the successful entrepreneurs I know. Like every rule, there's exceptions. There's some people that do work stupidly hard and also turn out to be successful. And I think they falsely attribute it to the fact that they're working really hard. I think those people would have been successful even without that. They just, you know, make the kind of connection that I worked hard and I'm successful. Therefore, it must be because I worked hard.
0: Hmm, this is interesting. So, what about someone like Gary Vee, man? Like, I interviewed him. You know, I, I'm not sure if you've seen like his stuff or any mm-hmm. videos and all about the hustle. Like, what are your, what is your take on that?
1: So, I, firstly, I think Gary is an amazing speaker. I watched him at Summit Series a few years ago. Truly, think he's a great guy. His dream of wanting to own the New York Jets that just resonates with me because that's kind of my dream scenario, right? Owning a sports team. (laughs) Oh wow! Um, I have no idea how hard Gary actually works. My guess is he's good at prioritizing. Um, Does he talk about working? Like I know he talks about the hustle, but very often the hustle is you know working smart. It's being willing to do anything, not necessarily putting in the maximum number of hours. Like you know, I've like there's a lot of things that I think make sense. Like for instance. If you want something, you go out and make it happen. You know, that's something Gary talks a lot about. I fully believe that. I'm not discounting that. I just think if you need to work twelve hours a day to make something happen, you might want to reconsider if what you're doing is the best path to get there. Like, is there a way, you know, like like I think you make very good decisions based based on time constraints. And if you challenge yourself to think about am I working on something, am I like that's something we've realized. Like what, every so often, I just pause and I'm like, "We're working too hard. Like, are we? Should we hire someone? Should we be kind of outsourcing parts of this business? Like, what are we doing that's making us work so hard? Because I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of working very hard. It's a different kind of laziness to get to a point where you're working too hard. Um, and I would always, and I still strive to, I still, you know, still sometimes we feel we're like, wait, why? Why are we here in the office like past seven every single day? Like, like what, what are we doing? Like why? Like let's let's rethink something. And usually there's something inefficient in our entire setup that makes us do those things. And that's that's what I'm mostly talking about. Not like, you know, like I like I, I still stand by the whole Gary V, like you gotta do whatever you gotta do to make something happen. Like there have been numerous times I've, you know, gotten on a I've sent emails to potential partners saying, hey, I'm gonna be here on so and so date. And when they say yes, you know, buy a ticket and show up like you do all of that good stuff. But at the same time, I'm personally always striving really hard to find a work life balance. I fail a lot of times, but I think that's something everyone listening should strive for rather than falling into this kind of fake, at least in my opinion, untrue narrative that you necessarily need to be working, you know, 80 hour weeks to make something happen.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, this is, this is great. So last question or two last questions. Um, the first is, you know, it sounds like you're pretty effective. What advice do you have on being an effective CEO?
1: Honestly, I think, I think it's a combination of finding the right people. And when you have that being comfortable, letting them make decisions. So, you know, multiple people that, you know, I've hired, in the first day or two i can't remember why i read this but what i tell them what i've told them is look i'm hiring you because i think you're you're very smart and i'm also hiring you because i want you to reduce the number of decisions i need to make like part of your job is making decisions on my behalf and in return i'm going to allow you to make the wrong decision you know 20 25% of times so you can make a lot of wrong decisions as long as most of your decisions are correct so explicitly giving people the ability to make decisions for me, I think has been massively, massively helpful in both preserving my own sanity and helping people feel empowered. And I think that's what it comes down to. And that's something that's initially very hard to do because, you know, and it still is something that's at one level, at a cerebral level, hard for me to do because it's like a lot of this company was my baby. But, you know, I'm just realized you find smart people and you empower them. And that's what I, I think being a CEO comes down to. At the same time, who knows, right? I've been, I've been, I've been a CEO for... Well, I've called myself a CEO all my life, but you're only really a CEO when you have other employees.
0: Yeah, that's uh, right.
1: As opposed to, you know, the 18-year-old me being the founder, CEO, chief marketing <laughs> officer of my own company. Um, yeah. So, I, I, you know, that's been my takeaway. I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm learning so much on the job as, as I go along. But, yeah, find great people, empower them, be good to them.
0: Awesome. All right. Look, uh, last question, Ankur, uh, and that is uh, where's the best place people can find you?
1: Um I think the best place would probably be Twitter. I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash hunker knockball. That's yeah, that's probably the best channel. Grab a hold of me there. I'm, um, you know, also check us out at teachable.com. And yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, look, this has been an awesome conversation, man. Look, uh, thank you so much for your time.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Nathan. It's been a complete blast.
0: Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview.